ornaments dedicated to God. Jesus said, As for the things you are admiring, the time is coming when not even one stone will be left upon another. All will be demolished. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things happen? What sign will show that these things are about to happen? This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So we need to understand that Jesus and his disciples are on one of their trips and their visits to the city of Jerusalem. Jesus' ministry was based out of Galilee in a city called Capernaum there on the borders on the coast of the sea or Lake Galilee. But he made pilgrimages into um, Judea into Judah, into Jerusalem. And on one of these trips, he would go and he would interact with people and they would do a lot of people watching. A lot of the stories that we have are because Jesus sees something happening and he points it out to his disciples and it becomes a lesson to us. The widow's might, the Pharisee and the sinner, the tax collector praying. But on this trip, we aren't sure if this is one of the 12 disciples talking, or if this is part of the larger group of disciples, or if this is some of the people, they're people watching. They hear people talking about how magnificent the temple is. And the temple was magnificent. This is Herod's temple. They're called the second temple. The first one was Solomon's temple. That one was destroyed when the people were carried off into exile into Babylon. This is the next one. Herod built it. Herod spared no expense He wanted to be accepted by the Jewish people. He married a Jewess, a woman who was Jewish, in hopes that that would help them accept him as their king. But he was really an agent of the Roman Empire. They were never going to accept him. But he tried, and he built this magnificent temple. The Temple Mount was 1,600 feet long and 900 feet wide. Now, to try to get that in perspective... It was longer than five football fields and wider than three football fields. I've been able to see these. I have a few pictures I want to show you. The first one I took just of the big wall. Um, And so this is, you can see the tops of people's heads. It's a big wall. It's a lot in there. But you don't really get a scale for the size of it. Let me see the next picture. So I stuck one of my sons in front of one of those stones for some perspective in there. That's a big stone. When you just look at it, you think, okay, stones, yeah, I get it, wall. No, stones. Some of those stones weighed 600 tons. And show me the last one there. Yeah, this is the Western Wall. This is part that is still up and where the Jewish people still go to pray. And there's a woman's section and a man's section. And you can see on the left the wall. I got in trouble for climbing in one of those chairs to look over the wall. Um, because I'm a troublemaker and got fussed at. But people go and they pray because they're wanting their temple back. They want to see the temple rebuilt. It was the center of their worship. And so when Jesus hears them talking about their beautiful temple, because we believe from the records that Herod painted the outside white and it had gold embellished fixings on it, Imagine seeing because it stood nine stories above where the people were. When they talked about going up to Jerusalem, they meant going up the Temple Mount to Jerusalem in there. Imagine this 
Beautiful buildings standing nine stories tall, gleaming white in the sun, with gold embellishments on it, with stones that size that could weigh 600 tons. It was beautiful. And it was the center of their worship. It was where the Jewish people went to make their sacrifices, to hear scriptures read, where they went to those have the festivals celebrated. Now, sure, they had to travel days sometimes to get there, and so they had synagogues, learning centers in their local cities where they would go and discuss scripture, but the difference is Sunday school and Christmas Eve. The temple was the center of their worship. And they're talking about how pretty it is and how magnificent it is and how blessed they are to have this temple. And Jesus says, this ain't going to be here that long. This is not permanent. This is not forever. One day, this beautiful building will be nothing but a pile of rubble. Well, that creates some cognitive dissonance in the mind of the disciples. What do you mean it won't be here? Do you see how big this is? Now remember, they didn't have cranes. They didn't have bombs. They didn't have the things we did to destroy things. Like, who's going to be able to take this down? It was all they had known, the center of their faith. And they can't imagine a time when it is not the center of their faith. But Jesus is saying to them, there is a crisis coming. There is a time when things are going to change and be very different. And you need to be prepared for those changes. So they say what we all say. Well, tell us when this is going to happen. Anybody notice a crisis never comes on a schedule? You never get a save the date card for a crisis. Part of what makes it a crisis is it just knocks your feet out from under you and you don't know what to do. And like so many of the Jewish people then and now, and the disciples, even the followers of Jesus, they want to know how do we save it? Help me be prepared for that. Jesus doesn't give them a really straight answer. He gives them some things that are going to happen. Some people are going to pretend to be me between now and then. There's going to be some wars. You're going to be persecuted. It's going to get bad. It's going to get bad. But it's going to be okay. He really doesn't give them the answer that they want. While I was in Kansas, I had the opportunity to hear from a gentleman named Tom Bolsinger. He's written a number of books, and I got to hear him on Wednesday for a little bit at Gathering the Orders here in North Alabama. And one of the things that he says over and over is, nobody cares if your institution survives. They only care whether you care about them. This is why this instance with Jesus and the disciples matters. Because it has to do with the motivation of why we do what we do. Y'all, people outside of Aniston First United Methodist Church don't care if we protect and keep this sanctuary and these buildings. They don't care. We care about that. They don't care about that. What the people outside our doors care about is whether or not we care about them. So we have to be careful that when we are being the disciples of Jesus in the 21st century, that our goal is to care about the people. Because if we care about the people, if we get on fire for the mission of God... Other people will catch fire. And they will join us in that mission. And those things we want will come as a byproduct of that. If the only reason we want to reach people is because we want to increase attendance and we want to increase giving and we want to increase membership, 
then folks, what we're doing is we're using people. We're using them. We want them to come to help us with our end. We have to flip that. The mission of God sends us to care about the people. And the things that we have come as tools to help us fulfill that mission. Jesus is trying to reset his disciples' thinking on the mission and not on the tools for the mission. He's also trying to, come to prepare them for the fact that there are two stages of a crisis. The first stage is an acute stage. And when an acute stage of a crisis comes, you hunker down. You prepare, you stabilize, you preserve. How many of you here lived through the blizzard of 93? Winter storm 93? Oh, good grief. That was the first winter after I got married. And it came at the end of a week I had taken off. Well, no, I didn't take off. Joseph was off. So we spent the first half of the week staying with my parents in Gadsden and the second half of the week staying with my new in-laws down the road. And I got snowed in at my in-laws' house and Joseph went back to Birmingham to work. About four hours later, Tammy drug her suitcase to her parents' house. But all we had to do for the blizzard of 93 was hunker down eat some Vienna sausage that we heated on the little, you know, in the fire or on the heater. We just had to get through it because the snow was going to melt and it was going to be fine. It was a blizzard. That's an acute crisis. It lasts and it's over. But some crises are adaptive crises. It's the second stage of a crisis where it doesn't end quickly. It doesn't go back to the way it was. Things bubble to the surface that now will have to be addressed very often this happens in marriages. You start out fighting over the TV and the program you're going to watch and then you find out it has to do with everything that has ever ticked you off for the last 40 years. There were other issues that bubbled to the surface. An adaptive crisis is much more like the ice age. It's going to be here for a while. Things are never going back to how they were before. And the problem becomes if we try to live as an acute crisis in an adaptive crisis, do you know what happens? Do you know what happened to the animals that couldn't adapt? They were hoping the blizzard would be over. They didn't make it. And we have species we don't have now because they couldn't make it. I tell you this because, my friends, COVID started out as an acute crisis and it has become an adaptive crisis crisis. Do you remember when COVID first hit? They told us to go home. Go home. Stay in your house. Don't talk to, don't touch, don't look at anybody for three weeks, 21 days. If we can do that, we can survive this. We can hunker down till the COVID blizzard is over because the virus will run its course. It'll have no more hosts and it'll be over. It's not over. It lasted two years or more. We still are having COVID cases today. What we thought was a blizzard has become an ice age. And other things bubbled to the surface. Not just here in our congregation, but in every Christian congregation across our country and across the globe. In every congregation of any faith, anywhere in the world, COVID has changed what things look like. We told people to go home and not come to church, and some of them did, and they never came back. 
they discover they didn't turn into a complete reprobate just because they weren't going to church on Sunday mornings. And for some of them, it gave them the opportunity to really focus on all the things they didn't like about church and all the things they did like about how they were spending their Sunday morning. I like staying in my pajamas. I like drinking coffee. I can watch it online if I want to. I like going to brunch. I like spending time with my kids. None of which are bad things. Not a single one of them. But they convinced themselves that they would prefer to give up the fellowship of believers for those things. It changed a lot of things, an awful lot of things. Originally, they told us we could expect about a 20% decrease in the number of people who are coming back. We are across the country experiencing a 40 to 50% decline in attendance in churches of all denominations. 40 to 50%. For the very first time in our country's history, more than half of Americans do not identify as Christian. They're just not. They're not Christian. And of the people who do identify as Christian, two-thirds of them have no connection with any congregation at all. They may listen to some music online. I can get Hillsong. I can get Bethel online. may watch some preachers online. But they don't have a fellowship of believers to which they are connected to. Think about how much of our world has no support, no connection to other believers in a way we think is vital. And they think we're wrong about that being vital. The problem is we still, in the church, who love what we do, are still treating it like an acute crisis. And we just want it to be like it was. And the reality is it will never be like it was. There are those moments in the history of the world that everything was different My older son watched an older movie that somebody got him to watch. And in the movie, people are greeting their loved ones from a plane as they come off the little taxiway thing, right as they come out the door in the airport. And Andrew said, it's not a realistic movie. I said, well, it used to be. It was when it was made. But you see, he was born in 1994. He has no conscious memory of a world before 9-11. There has always been tight TSA security at an airport that he's ever gone to. There are moments that change us forever. And what we are experiencing right now is one of those changes. I think it's interesting the way the disciples reacted to that. Because what they thought, I imagine, in their mind was, what do you mean this temple's going to fall? There's no way. This temple has been here as long as I've been alive. It's too big. It's too stable. It's too great. It's too wonderful. What could possibly destroy this temple? Well, they found out in 70 AD when it was destroyed. But what they say out loud is, when? Can you give me a heads up? Like I'm going to need a cheat sheet for this. But Jesus is trying to prepare them to develop their ability to adapt to the changes that are coming. And the loss of that temple is just one of them. You see, the reason is because at the moment of crisis, we will not rise to the occasion. We will default to our training. 
I heard somebody say this on the news this morning, which was interesting because this sermon had been written and slides made and uploaded long before I was watching the news this morning. But a guy who does um, active shooter training for churches was talking about why. Why should churches do that? Because you certainly hope it's never going to happen. But he said, the things we train you to do, you can do if you happen to get in a situation at a school or at, at a store. And God forbid we don't ever want it to happen. But if it happens, you won't figure it out in the moment. You'll default to your training and what you've been taught to do. Jesus is training his people to adapt to the challenges. Think about all the changes that those disciples are going to face. The one they cannot even imagine at this moment, turns out it's probably going to be the least of their worries long term. Their leader is going to get crucified. He's then going to be resurrected. Which, I mean, let's stop and pause for just a second and think about how unlikely that sounds to them. There's going to be martyrdom. There's going to be a Holy Spirit arrival on Pentecost. There's going to be the inclusion of Gentile people now in the family of God. There's going to be persecution and arrests. There's going to be an exploding new movement of God. They have no idea how to handle change after change after change. There will be new rituals and rituals lost. There will be new relationships and relationships lost. And Jesus is trying to help them figure out how to deal with that. Because there are two approaches to two different kinds of situations that we can do. The first one is we can have a technical problem. And if we have a technical problem, well, you get an expert and you use best practices. Last Sunday afternoon, we had a charge conference here at 2 o'clock. We had some other churches joining us. Everything worked fine. Sunday morning for worship, we went to our serve day. We got no sound, no microphones working anywhere. So what do you do? Well, you go through the list. What are, the, what are we supposed to do? How does all of this work? And Emma had done her best, and Matt's done his best, and we're standing around, and finally, I don't even remember who said it, but somebody's like, let's just shut it all off and start over. We'll start over with the list, turn it all off. Well, I learned something. I learned you got to go back in the sacristy and turn the amps on before you turn the soundboard on or you won't get sound. And that's not how we did it. Best practices will get you through a technical problem. And if they don't, you call an expert who will come and help you figure it out. But there are other types of problems. There are adaptive challenges Uncharted new territory that you don't have any idea how to face. And no amount of best practices will help you with this one. And there are no experts. Nobody alive knows how to face what we are facing. Did you know that every other crisis, every other pandemic in the history of the world since Jesus, the church has grown Pandemics tend to drive people into their faith, not away from it. This is the first time that a worldwide crisis has diminished our faith. Nobody knows what to do with that. And the truth is that doing what we've always done, doing it harder, doing it more, doing it with more enthusiasm, won't solve 
an adaptive challenge. Adaptive challenges need learners, people willing to learn new things. And it requires experiments to figure out what works. Bolsinger said, if somebody comes to you right now and tells you, I know exactly how to get your church back to, to the attendance that it was. I know exactly how to get you back there. Hire me and I will make sure. He said, they are lying. They are lying to you. We have mentors and we have guides and we have people who are further down the road of learning and adapting than we are who can help us, but there are no experts for uncharted territory. I don't know if you remember um, learning in school about the Lewis and Clark expedition. For some reason, it's about this much in my memory. I don't remember that much about it. But they thought that they could find a water route all the way across the United States. And so the expedition set out to do that because if you could control the movement of goods and the waterways that brought them, you could control economy and commerce. So that's what they set out to do. But they reached a point coming across the continent where there was no more water. Now, they had prepared for a water journey. Did you know that they even invented a new kind of canoe? And they carved them out with their own hands. They made what they were traveling in, and they reached a point where it wasn't going to take them anywhere else. Like, there's no water. And the thing is, you can sit on, a gra- on the ground and paddle earth all you want to, and your canoe is not going anywhere. Because canoes work in water. And so what Lewis and Clark asked their people to do is stop being canoers and become hikers. Not only do I want you to put down the canoe, I want you to break it up for firewood. Because we're not going to quit. There were two reasons he wanted to, to burn the canoes. One was because then you wouldn't have any choice but to keep going. They had to adapt. No amount of just doing it harder would fix it. And I believe that as we move into this adaptive phase of the crisis, we need a spirit of adventure. What does the future look like? What lies before us? How can we be adventurous? How can we learn some new things? How can we adapt? The problem has been that we want to turn on each other. And blame each other for the crisis. If you would just paddle harder, it would be better. And that won't fix it. And it's uncomfortable and it's scary. If you think it is less scary for your staff than it is for you about what this looks like, let's have lunch and chat. It wakes us up in the middle of the night. It creates anxiety that we need plans for dealing with the anxiety for. We don't know what it looks like either. But here's the good news. One, the Lewis and Clark expedition actually managed to exist as an expedition because they didn't turn on one another. That's what the Donner Party did. Look that one up. If you don't know what I'm talking about. We are not going to become cannibals and turn on each other. We need to stay a team. We are together. There is safety in numbers. And as we move forward to stay united, as the disciples of Jesus Christ, worshiping and serving here, figuring out what the next path is that God has given us. And God promises never 
never to leave us as we do. He will always be with us. Way on down in this chapter, down in verse 34, after we've talked all through so many of these things, Jesus says, Take care that your hearts aren't dulled with drinking parties and drunkenness and the anxieties of day-to-day life. Don't let the day find you unexpected and unprepared like a trap. Stay alert at all times, praying so you will be strong enough for what is coming. And every day, Jesus kept teaching them in the temple. We have to develop our ability to trust God and to adapt for the future. Does that mean we can't love what we love? No. Does it mean we shouldn't do anything that we're doing? No, it doesn't. But it means we have to make space in our hearts, in our minds, in our programming, in our scheduling, for the things we can do to reach that enormous amount of people who don't have any connection to a church, to a faith community, or even any connection to God through Jesus Christ. That's how we find our way forward. You remember I asked you several weeks ago for 10 minutes of your time every day, just 10 minutes. It's what, two, two commercial segments. Commercials last forever. To read through the book of Acts, look at those early believers and the way they faced the unknown and the unexpected and the obstacles and see if there was anything that felt planted in your heart. Spend seven minutes doing that and then three minutes listening to God. Because I'm convinced that's the key to the future. We have some incredibly smart people in this church. Some gifted people. But the problem is we have gifted people who are experts and know best practices. And those won't necessarily help us. The way we discover what experiments we need to do and how we learn new things is we stay connected to God. We stay in prayer. We stay in Scripture. We stay in love with God and we stay in love with one another and we stay in love with the people God is sending us to. I want you to keep doing that. Keep talking to God about who does He need us to be. And ask Him if you have made room in your heart, in your life, in your idea of what the perfect church looks like for the church that God is actually trying to create so that we can reach those who aren't yet here. Let's pray. Almighty, gracious, and loving God, we confess to you that all this makes us very anxious. We don't know what the future looks like, and for many of us, that is not a comfortable place to be. Give us the courage to recognize that the future is not in going back. Help us to accept that difficult reality that it's not ever going to be that way again. But that doesn't mean it's not going to be good. And it will be good because you are with us. Cultivate within us through your Holy Spirit an expanded capacity for change. Help us to follow you to the world that you need reached for your Son, Jesus Christ.
Amen.